I'm 26, I'm getting there, I'm heading towards 30. How could I retain healthy skin and lips? Clinically, what a lot of people are not aware of, there are only two active ingredients that clinically have been proven to have an anti-aging effect. So those two ingredients are the one best thing that anyone can do to ensure that they, they have good skin and they, the skin looks continues to look healthy and young as they age is. It was quite shocking the amount of people that have had cosmetic procedures in foreign countries and they've gone wrong. So albeit that it is not a prescription medication, it is a substance that can potentially cause catastrophic permanent disfigurement. You've just blown my mind. I think that so many people just assume that because they're getting a filler or because they're getting some kind of cosmetic procedure that they would have a license. And including those who are not medically trained have been allowed to provide dermal fillers procedure to just about anyone. Dr. Kieran Bong is a world-renowned cosmetic doctor. And in this podcast, he's going to go over the dangers of cosmetic procedures, especially getting them done overseas, an untrustworthy source. But also the ins and outs of what he does. What actually is Botox? What is the liquid they use? How long does it last? All of this information is in this podcast. This is the Into the Mind podcast. My name is Harrison Brown. If you're watching or listening, I hope this helps. So, Kieran, thank you so much for coming in. No, thank you for having me. Very good afternoon. Yeah, you too, and I appreciate it, man. Um, I was having a wee stock of your Instagram, and I was quite—it was quite shocking the amount of people that have had cosmetic procedures in foreign countries and they've gone wrong. And it, it, what is the the kind of worst stories that you have about cosmetics going wrong in these maybe foreign countries or non-trusted clinics? Uh, yes, yes. I, it's, um, the we we're seeing uh, a high number of patients who go to uh, a, different countries in um, predominantly in eastern part of Europe uh, and uh, have procedures and have suffered complications. Unfortunately, I personally think uh, it's a lot to do with the fact that potentially uh, language barrier is a factor in a sense that when it comes to cosmetic procedures, it's important for the patient to, who's visioned align with the person they're consulting with. Mm. A, the, I would like to think that those surgeons and doctors in those countries are very well trained and very experienced, but a lot of the, um, uh, some of the reasons I personally think is as a result of the fact that the patient's vision is not aligning with the, the surgeon or the doctor that they're consulting with. Um, but whether it's cosmetic surgery or cosmetic med medical procedures, there are always risks of compl complications. And my personal opinion is that some patients fail to appreciate the, those risks. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing wrong with having procedures carried out in foreign countries because those surgeons and doctors are very well trained themselves and I would like to think that have extensive experience as well. But the the risks associated with those procedures are probably not uh, conveyed uh, to patients, and and some patients perhaps maybe fail to appreciate that these risks, if they were to unfortunately suffer those complications, and they are physically in the UK, it can be very, uh, it can be tricky for doctors in the UK to understand exactly what they have had yeah. and, and, and the complexity of the procedures that they've had in those countries. But 
The bigger picture is such that in the UK, um, particularly in the non-surgical uh, arena, if you like, is that the lack of regulations is such that we have we have seen proliferation of providers, um, particularly in the non-surgical uh, side of cosmetic. Uh, we refer that to cosmetic medicine or cosmetic dermatology or facial aesthetics procedures. We have seen over the past 10 years or so that there has been a proliferation of providers, if you like, of all sorts of backgrounds. A, um, specifically when it comes to non, uh, non-surgical and injectables such as Botox and fillers, the, um, in the UK, un- unlike many countries in, in Europe and throughout the world, UK doesn't really have a specific regulation uh, a targeting the non-surgical industry specifically. A, so we are seeing uh, providers of um, from non-medical backgrounds um, offering injectables such as Botox and fillers. Mm. A, and and this trend is unfortunately progressing and we are seeing this um, high number of providers without proper training, proper medical background offering these procedures. And unfortunately, the general public is also not aware of the the fact that these procedures are medical procedures. Um, one example I can give you is uh, a lot of people are not aware of the fact that Botox or botulinum toxin is a prescription medication. Uh, so a, when they are consulting with somebody who is offering botulinum toxin, this person has to be A, a clinician, B, a clinician who has a license to prescribe a prescription-only medication. But Botox is such a household name that many members of the public are not aware of the fact that it's a prescription medication. So... And apart from the fact that it's a prescription medication, it is also a medical procedure. Um, Dermal fillers, for example, is such a popular treatment. And dermal filler, albeit that it's not a prescription medication, but it is classified as a medical procedure. Uh, Yet a lot of providers are not medically trained. Um, So this is when the confusion uh, is such that general public is not aware that they should perhaps maybe do their research and do their homework before they approach a provider. Mm. The the complexity of the situ- <clears throat> situation is such that in the UK the action of the je- the the action of injecting is not as <clears throat> I'm probably not explaining this very very well. So the 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 action of the carrying out a procedure that involves in injection is not. Uh, illegal if you're not medically trained. As long as the person who is receiving that injection is aware that you are performing the procedure and you do not have a medical background. I get it. I get it. So so you think the UK's regulations isn't strict enough when it comes to non- uh, authenticated or non-medical personnel carrying out these kind of tricky procedures? Yes, yes, totally. So the, the a simplified example I can give you is that if you think about amoxicillin, which is a very commonly prescribed antibiotic, it is a prescription medication, it is a form of antibiotic, 
And if a person who is a non-prescriber, a non-clinician, is selling amoxicillin, that person is committing a criminal offence mm. because that person is not a clinician and that person is not a licensed prescriber. So by virtue of the fact that that person is selling amoxicillin, um, that person is committing a criminal offence. So the same principle should apply to botulinum toxin because it's as simple as that. Botulinum toxin is a prescription medication. And therefore, whoever is offering botulinum toxin without a medical background and without a license prescribed should and is committing a criminal offence. Um, but unfortunately, um, because of the uh, popularity of botulinum toxin, uh, patients are not aware of the fact that it is a prescription medication and therefore they should have the procedure uh, carried out by a clinician who has a license to prescribe. Now, you're going to ask, so how do, how do these people who are not clinicians and, no, and, and have no license to prescribe procure their botulinum toxin? Read my mind. <laughs> uh, it, so it's, um, the, the situation is such that a lot of these providers are able to import them from different parts of uh, a, 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 Europe and or outside Europe and there are some online uh, sellers who sell directly to these uh, non-prescribers as well. Mm. So the lack of regulation and the lack of enforcement um, is such that it's allowing these uh, non-clinicians and non-prescribers the opportunity to procure these medications and offer these procedures. So this is when the... Um, it, 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 this is when I find it puzzling and rather um, it, it's difficult to, 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 to justify why there is no such enforcement because if somebody was to be providing COVID vaccine without a license prescribed or mm. um, without being a clinician, that person um, would be apprehended. And, and, but if the person is offering botulinum toxin, which itself is also a prescription medication, that person seems to be able to get away with it. So I think uh, the it's because of this kind of um, lack of enforcement and lack of regulation that is allowed the, the the industry to to develop into the the, the way it is now. Mm. Um, with regards to dermophilar, albeit that it is not a prescription medication, dermophilars are substances which are injected into the tissue to create shape, volume, as well as contour. But equally, by virtue of the fact that it is a substance, it's a physical substance, it can also be accidentally injected into blood vessels. Oh. And if that was to happen, um, a, it can potentially block the blood vessels and deprive that area of the tissue of oxygen. And that specific part of the tissue can potentially sustain prolonged oxygen deprivation to such an extent that um, it, the viability of the tissue can be permanently and adversely affected. Um, so, albeit that it is not a prescription medication, it is a substance that can potentially cause catastrophic permanent disfigurement. Um, so, the lack of regulation is such that the providers of different background and, uh, and including those who are not medically trained have been allowed to provide dermal fillers procedure to just about anyone. Um, 
And this is when we, the, the clinicians, find it difficult to comprehend why that has been allowed to progress to the way it is today. Um, a lot of people argue that, um, especially those who are not from a, a medical background, they argue that they are just as good at performing the procedures mm. as the ones who, are, who have um, medical training. And also medical training itself does not necessarily mean that that person knows how to carry out an aesthetic procedure. But it is more complex than, than that. That is an oversimplified way of looking at a medical procedure. If I may give you a couple of examples, the, if a patient, when, when I'm consulting with a patient, um, if a patient is on a medication, perhaps maybe let's say methotrexate, which is a, a medication that's commonly prescribed for people with rheumatoid arthritis, um, a doctor like myself, I would take that into consideration because when you have a foreign substance injected into somebody's body um, that consists of hyaluronic acid, which is what the, the dermal fillers majority of them are made of, um, there is, I will keep it in mind that one in 10,000 people, they may potentially find that their tissue will not like the dermal filler that's sitting there. So I will keep that in mind just by looking at the medical history of a patient. So uh, the pr procedure is not just a procedure. A procedure mm. to a clinician is more than just a procedure. A, or if a patient was to be on perhaps maybe two antidepressive medications, a clinician like myself, I would immediately think it is um, likely that this person may potentially have severe depressive illness or a history of severe depressive illness because in general people who are on antidepressant medication if they were to be on two that can only be prescribed by a psychiatrist not a gp a gp can prescribe an antidepressant medication but just one time but mm. if a if a person is on two uh, antidepressants is an indication that the, the history of depressive illness is probably on the severe side. And that would have been um, prescribed by a psychiatrist. A, or um, some non-medical providers argue that they, well, the, 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 the clinicians uh, argue that these are medical procedures and clinicians should be the ones who perform these procedures because it requires an acute understanding of human anatomy. But non-medical providers argue that uh, they do they learn anatomy as well and they, they are familiar with uh, facial anatomy as well. This is when I personally think a lot of people get surface anatomy confused with applied clinical anatomy. And if I may give you a, a more technical example about mm -hmm about that is, um, so when I'm injecting somebody's top lip um, with dermal filler, I will have it in my mind that I will make a mental map. I will divide the, the, the one side of the, the, the top lip into three, uh, three sections. So you have the inner one third, middle one third, and outer one third. And I will say to myself that 68% of the blood vessels would go from the skin above the top lip into the top lip 
at the junction between the outer one-third and the inner one-third. So I will try to avoid uh, my you know, pointing the tip of my instrument at that very junction because then there is a risk of me placing the filler accidentally into that blood vessel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will also look at the border between the what we call the wet wet dry border. The our lips are such that you have the wet part and you have the dry part. The dry part is where you are able to see um, from the outside. So the a lot of the three quarter of the blood vessels are found to be behind the wet dry border. Uh, so when you're pointing an instrument, when you're injecting in somebody's lips, a clinician who has been trained well and and has the necessary experience would know that three quarter of the blood vessels are sitting behind the wet dry border and therefore you will want to avoid pointing the tip of the instrument um, behind the wet dry border because you're increasing the risk of accidental injection of the filler into the blood vessel unnecessarily. And that would stop the blood flow to that part of the lip? Yes, yes. So this is what I call applied clinical anatomy. Um, so applied clinical anatomy is very different from surface anatomy. Surface mm. anatomy is you, you, you are able to name um, the, the different anatomical structures. So those are surface anatomy, but applied clinical anatomy is different. And, and I think fundamentally this is when uh, the disagreement between clinicians and non-clinicians uh, arise is um, the... N- Providers who, with without medical training, argue that they are able to perform the procedure just as well as, or they understand anatomy just as well as as as, as medically trained clinicians. Um, but that's because they don't realize that you know there is a difference between surface anatomy and applied clinical anatomy. Hmm. That you've just blown my mind. I think that the the law being so loose around these uh, fillers. Uh, and different procedures, cosmetic procedures. I, I never knew that before. I think that so many people just assume that because they're getting a filler or because they're getting some kind of cosmetic procedure that they would have a license. But what, what do you think the percentage is in terms of people that are doing these procedures that don't have a license comparison to do? Chisholm Hunter are the sponsors of the Into the Mind podcast. And without Chisholm Hunter, I would not be sitting here today. So I need to take the time just to talk about them for for two seconds. They specialize in luxury watches and luxury jewelry. And they've actually been going for over 165 years, which is pretty damn old. They're also family run, which is a really rare thing nowadays. So if you're looking for a luxury watch or a luxury diamond, head to chismhunter.co.uk. That's chismhunter.co.uk. And with that said, back to the podcast. Oh, I, to be honest with you, I don't know, uh, mm. because we are seeing a more and more people from a non-medical background offering these procedures, um, particularly in the UK. Um, and so I, I really don't know the statistics because, mm. and that's, I think, another um, issue with what we are seeing in the non-surgical um industry is that because of well for the doctors and the nurses and the dentist we are legally uh 
required to be registered with for the doctors, general medical council, and nurses, the nursing yeah. council, and then the dentist, the den, uh, dentistry council. But non-medical providers are not required to be registered with anyone because there is no such register for them. A, so, so statistically, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to know how many uh, providers from, from non-medical background. And that can potentially be a, 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 an issue when a patient is uh, confronted with complications. And I have seen uh, many, many cases of patients having come into contact with a provider over uh, Instagram and many non-medical providers have only Instagram profiles mm. and a mobile number instead of having a physical premises a, and, and, and a proper website. And so when a patient is having difficulty with their procedure and is trying to raise their concern with a provider with only a social media profile and a mobile number, I have seen cases that the provider would block this patient from having access to their social media profile and would then block their mobile number, block the patient's mobile number. Wow. And, and because the provider who is a non-medical one and, and who does not have a register yeah. um, or a, a, an, an oversight body, if you like, uh, the, this patient has no other ways of getting help from this provider. Um, whereas a clinician has an overriding duty of care. Mm. Um, and that is ultimately what, what oversees um, our practice, that we have this overriding duty of care. We have an oversight body um, that would regulate the conduct of clinicians. And, and so when a, if a patient was to have any concern regarding their procedure, we are legally obliged and ethically obliged to have to attend to those concerns. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the, those are just examples of why um, it is not just as straightforward as, okay, you want to have either Botox or filler, look up Instagram, look at somebody's Instagram profile, and then get in contact with them and then go to them. Uh, a, a patient has to do their homework, do their research, think carefully about the fact that these are medical procedures with potentially uh, permanent um, a, with complications that can potentially be catastrophic. Mm. Um, it, I'm, I'm not saying that, um, that's not to say that these procedures are risky and dangerous. They, when they are performed correctly and performed with uh, proper you know, training, the, these procedures can be transformational. Yeah. A, uh, the, a lot of our patients, so di different people come to us for different reasons. Um, albeit that it is referred to as a cosmetic procedure, it is not always um, about the cosmesis or the aesthetics element of the procedure the you know we can do so much now with non-surgical um facial aesthetics procedures like oh, i see significant number of patients who have had uh perhaps maybe 
an appearance of their noses that they are not happy about. They've had uh, trauma in the in the past when they were young, growing up, cycling, um, falling off their bicycle, and and they have um, dents um, in their nose. Um, so we can use dermal filler to smoothen out the the contour of the nose and the the appearance of the nose for them. Uh, so it is, and or we see patients with asymmetry, a um, they. The asymmetry can be such that they are self-conscious about it. Um, so it's not always about wrinkles and lines and about making somebody more beautiful. Interesting. Have you? Social media is a really, really scary thing, and I think it's especially scary when it comes to the younger generation. And I think one one key feature on social media that I find very terrifying, especially especially for younger people, is filters. Uh, and if you're looking at social media three hours a day, Sorry. you're all good. Uh, and if you're looking at social media three hours a day <clears throat> and you've got this beautiful smooth skin and it makes you more symmetrical because it's a filter, that will become your reality. Have you seen an increase in uh, younger people coming in because of these kind of uh, filters that have been applied through social media? Uh, yes, it is not uncommon that I see patients who come in that describe what they're looking for, and then they pull out their phones, yeah. and then they 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 pull out their phones, and then they show you um, either a picture of someone else mm. that they they would like to um, um, to perhaps maybe um, not uh, the word copy is not not the right word. Um, but they, they have seen pictures on social media that they like and they would like to use those pictures to illustrate what they are talking about and hopefully we can recreate some of the results mm. that they are looking for. Or they pull out a picture of themselves um, and and they are trying to illustrate the fact that this is the aspect, that specific aspect of them that they don't, they don't like or and then another picture, these are the aspects of themselves that they like. What I think they don't realize is they, in order to get that one or two pictures, they probably have taken 30 pictures of themselves mm. um, and then pick one or two. So the way I consult with them is that, as particularly if it's an aspect of themselves that they don't like, I always just say to them that I say, you know, that very picture is one that you might have picked out from maybe 20 to 30 pictures. But when you're interacting with somebody in real life, you don't, you know, people don't get that, you know, people are not studying your face in such a way. People are not scrutinizing and examining your face in, in that way. For instance, um, I can have a patient who um, describes, okay, they, they look at me, they raise their brows and they say, can you see one side of my brow is not as high as the other side? So there is an asymmetry there. And then they document that in a picture. But I always say to them, when you're interacting with somebody and when you're enunciating, you don't hold your brows up mm. like that. But when you're, you're, when you're trying to document that asymmetry, you are mimicking that expression and you hold that expression there just so that you can take a picture of it and document it. But in real life, we don't interact with people that way. We don't hold our, our brows up. Um, that way. So the majority of people who interact with you are unlikely going to notice this asymmetry. Yeah, and I think pe people scrutinize themselves so much 
because of social media, because of pictures, because of editing apps, because of the fakeness of everything. Uh, and I think something that's quite good about your social media, if I may say, is that you kind of document uh, cases in perhaps different places that have gone wrong and how you can fix them and how that the other uh, people or whoever has carried out the procedure has, has done it wrong. And that's quite, just thinking about my kind of career, I've had to look at myself in front of a camera for so long that I've kind of grown numb to it. But I do remember at the start, and you remember this as well, Drew, I was like, oh, is my hair, sis? And my nose, and is the lighting right? And you know, you do get kind of infatuated by the way that you look, but you would look at me and you'd be like, you're absolutely fine, what are you talking about? Yes, yes, so it's not uncommon I ask my patient, especially if they are consulting with me in the presence of their spouses or their, their friends, because occasionally I do, well, actually quite quite frequently, I see patients who come in, not just um, by themselves, um, they come in with a friend or they come in with their, their partner. And it's not uncommon that I would turn to the partner and ask the partner, what do you think? Have you ever noticed that? And, and if the partner was to say, no, I've been telling her that, um, you know, I don't know what she's talking about. I usually, it's not uncommon, I would say to the patient, as you can see, it's exactly like what I've talked about, that people don't examine your face that way when they are talking to you, when they are interacting with you. But that's not to dismiss their concern, because it's important to have a balance when you are consulting with a patient that it is, you know, it's, it, it, it's all about listening to them and ascertaining what their concerns are and rather than being dismissive about it because um, it, as, as part of our assessment when we are consulting with a patient is we think about if this is potentially an issue for them and an issue big enough that they, they might potentially need um, other help. Um, so... And also as a clinician, it's about ascertaining if there is anything else we can do other than an aesthetic procedure to address these concerns. And some of these concerns can be addressed pretty easily by just us affirming to them that uh, it is there is nothing wrong about it. You know, it's mm. okay to be not symmetrical. <laughs> it is okay to, when you smile, one, one, the one corner of your mouth goes up higher than the other. So sometimes just by telling them that, it is enough to settle their mind and, and enough for them to move on, if you like. So not everything requires corrective procedures. Not everything requires in, an intervention. So that's how I consult with my patients. I... I, I listen to them first and if something that I can help and I think that, okay, well, it sounds like it is something that can be uh, can be corrected or improved, if you like, not necessarily a, a, a correct, but as in not, it, not every procedure is about correcting something. Um, so sometimes it's just an improvement that they are hoping to achieve. Um, and we always weigh out the risks and benefits of performing a procedure um, because if, if the risks outweigh um, the benefit that they are likely going to gain, then as a clinician, we are ethically bound to, to not perform that procedure but, but, or at least uh, convey that to the patients. And ultimately, they will need to make an informed decision about whether uh, they, they would like to have that procedure or not. Um, so, but sometimes it's just by telling them that, yes, I can see the asymmetry. Yes, I can see the imperfection in the skin quality. But there is nothing wrong with that. 
Mm. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's not uncommon I use myself as, you know, the subject. I would say to them, I say, look at me. When I smile, the corner of my mouth, one side goes up higher than the other. And you look at me, I have a lot of pores on my skin. I have oily skin. I've grown up with it. You know, I grew up with acne. I've been on Roaccutane twice. And I'm very, you know, upfront with them that, and sometimes using myself as an example, and in it, it, they, it, it allows them to relate to the fact that having some imperfection in life or in your appearance, it's not a bad thing. And I think we we see it as such a huge uh, deal. For example, if I were to have a spot on my face, that is the center of my universe. And I'm so annoyed that I have this spot in my face. And I think that everyone's staring, staring at said spot. Yes. But 99% of the time, everyone just goes, I don't really care. You know, I, I, he's got a spot on his face, then that's okay. And I think that you're probably doing it in the right way. And this, it was actually following on to another question that I had for you in terms of giving both options. Like, listen, here are the risks, but we could potentially do this. I think that if you were to go to an unlicensed uh, clinician that, that, that does these kind of procedures, they would more be inspired by the money that they can get rather than actually the ethics behind the procedure. Um, and that's, that's kind of the next things I, I was going to ask you. In terms of the, the ethical side of things, do you think that because this can have such a huge impact on people's confidence and the way they feel that it's probably the right thing to do? Or do you think that, I, I don't know, I feel like we're maybe going so far down this path of altering uh, facial structure or altering hairlines or altering ears, altering you know liposuction, that that's becoming the norm. And that's a little bit more scary because young children will compare themselves to people that have had this work done. What are your kind of views on the ethics of it? Yes. Now, so if I may, uh, if, if let's say if I was to remove myself as a clinician, right? Mm -hmm. And so a, a, if, you, if you think about it, the dental procedures, cosmetic den dentistry, uh, such as veneers or uh, crowns, we take away a layer of the enamel uh, when, you know, just before you, you, you have the crown or the uh, veneer fit, fitted. And that is a permanent loss because you won't be able to grow the enamel back. Yet a lot of people don't think twice about getting veneers or, or having a crown. So that's how much the society's mentality with regards to uh, cosmetic procedures, and in this case, cosmetic dentistry has changed, that people no longer see that they are actually causing permanent harm to their, their dentition mm. that can never be uh, replaced. Um, so that's how much the, the, the shift in the society's perception about a procedure can change over time. We live in the 21st century now, uh, with particularly with the influence of um, social media. It is unfortunately the way it is now that we are more uh, than ever more aware of appearance mm -hmm. and more, uh, more emphasis is placed on physical appearance. A, the... I think the 
balance is where having intervention but not overdoing it. So when I see a patient, I classify them in a way into three categories. One is correction. Second is beautification. And number three is a combination of both. So correction is one that, so for instance, if somebody was to come in to see me, they have moderate to severe what we call photo damage. So photo damage uh, refers to damage of the skin, cumulative damage of the skin over the years as a result of exposure to or excessive exposure to the sun. Um, and that can manifest itself in the form of uh, moderate to severe lines and wrinkles, saggy skin, brown spots, sunspots. So if somebody has sunspots and brown spots causing uneven skin tone and they are self-conscious about it, or they're self-conscious about smokers lines, for example, and smokers lines can you know happen in and in people who are not smokers. So we most of the time refer to them as vertical lines. What but are smokers lines? Is that smokers lines are those static wrinkles that you see above the top lip. Right. And most of the time you see them in women. Um, men, it's not common that men um, see uh, or get smokers lines. But it's predominantly uh, women who get very self-conscious about it. So if they have those smokers lines, they can feel quite self-conscious because they think it's very aging for them. And then when on a Friday night, for instance, when they're having dinner in a restaurant and invariably the, the lightings will be fairly dim and the background will be pretty um, loud and noisy, they think the person they are having dinner with is lip reading and focusing a lot on those lines ah. and they get quite self-conscious about it so when if they come in to see me for that mm. i will put them in the category of i need you know they are looking for a correction so they want those lines softened and corrected it's a tangible improvement that you are achieving for them so they fall into the correction category and and but you have some patients who are coming in they have beautiful lips they just want a little bit of enhancement to the shape of the contour of the lips because it's part of the aging process that we lose volume as well as we lose the definition in our lips so i but they don't necessarily need a that corrected. It's just marginally thinner than a few years ago. So this is when they want, they are looking for that procedure to enhance their appearance, to make, to beautify their appearance. So they fall into the beautification category. But most of our patients, when they get to their 40s or 50s, they fall into the third category, which is partially correcting something and partially trying to improve their appearance. Mm. So, for instance, volume loss is part of the aging process and a, it, we start losing volume. We start to age from the age of around about 30 years old. And, and one of the signs of aging is we start losing volume in the middle part of the face. So the cheeks start to lose the definition or the plumpness. And that you know, then translates into the appearance of sagginess in the lower one third of the face um, and jowliness. So I describe that as you know, a 
phenomenon such as you know it's akin to a balloon losing volume. Mm. Um, so when somebody comes in in the um, late thirties or early forties, for instance, they will have lost a small quantity of volume. So all they need is a a, a little bit of replacement of the volume plus some a slight introduction of definition and shape into the cheeks. So that requires a, a small degree of correction, i.e. volume replacement, and then a small degree of beautification, i.e. you introduce a little bit of definition and shape into the cheeks. So most people fall into that category. But it's about striking a balance, I think, because we live in the 21st century now. Um, a lot of my patients would say they don't want to grow, uh, they don't want to grow old disgracefully. <laughs> Like that. So um, the acceptability of cosmetic intervention is such that a lot of people perceive that as almost a part of self-grooming, mm. um, not dissimilar to them getting hair dye, getting veneers, getting dental crowns. They see that as part of just being in a society where physical appearance it's an important element of human interaction and the so the way to approach that mindset is making sure that one doesn't overdo it because anything in moderation is considered acceptable isn't it um it is only when you overdo it and there is quite a skewed almost pathological approach to cosmetic intervention when this is when it gives this industry a, a, a bad name that we see overfilled lips, um, people who have had such a high dose of Botox and in such frequency that they have almost zero expression um, or people who have overfilled lips or they've had laser resurfacing so frequently that they look like a wax model. Um, so I think it is when it, the balance is skewed towards overdoing, mm. this is when um, it, this is when that person perhaps maybe need to be um, reminded that it, you know, they, they, they need to be careful with what they are doing to themselves. For sure. For sure. And what actually, is it permanent when you do the, 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 either the lip fillers or the Botox or is that semi-permanent or? Yeah. So fillers are classified into non-permanent fillers, semi-permanent and permanent fillers. The, if you wind the clock back probably 25 years ago, permanent fillers were the most popular uh, choice of substance. This is because back then it's either you go you, you go for permanent fillers that would give you the longevity you are looking for, or you go for the non-permanent, which was collagen at the time. It was very, very popular back then. But collagen, the, the biggest disadvantages of collagen were that one, it was manufactured from an animal source, so predominantly pigs. And then second is the lack of longevity. So it being a, an animal-based product, uh, it meant that it shared s some protein, i.e. DNAs and protein with a uh, human being. So th the um, a 
and animal-based products would then come with the risk of allergy. Mm. So historically, back 20, 30 years ago, a patient would have to come into the clinic, have a patch test, and would have to then go away for 24, 48 hours in order to ascertain if they are allergic to it and then return to the clinic to have the procedure. So that itself was inconvenient, uh, was a form of inconvenience. And then the risk of allergy was high enough to as to put off a lot of people. And, and it being manufactured from pigs also meant that a massive segment of the society, i.e. the society from the Muslim background, um, a, would have been excluded from mm. having that that procedure. But one of the reasons why collagen is not easy to find nowadays is because of the lack of longevity. So back then, uh, collagen filler would last, if you're lucky, probably three to four months. Uh, really? So not a long time. Um, and it was costly, and you would only get three to four months of the result out of it. So came probably 20 years ago, they scientists discovered this molecule um, called hyaluronic acid. It is a molecule that you see a lot in skincare products. It's the holy grail of skincare product. And the primary function of hyaluronic acid is it has very high affinity to water. So hence your skincare product cannot do without it because if you have hyaluronic acid in your topical skincare, you apply it onto the surface of your skin, it attracts water. It has very high affinity to water. Each molecule of hyaluronic acid can attract up to a thousand times its molecular weight of water. So it attracts water towards itself. It plumbs the skin, the wrinkles and the lines, and the, the pores then seem smaller mm. and less noticeable. So that's the principle behind hyaluronic acid-based moisturizers. And so hyaluronic acid then... Um, the, the scientists started to put hyaluronic acid into syringes and the hyaluronic acid would then be injected into somebody's tissues and it would then, over the following a week to 10 days, attract water towards itself. And that's how it sustains the result. And, and hyaluronic acid is manufactured from bacteria, so it's no longer manufactured from a DNA-based animal source. Hence, the risk of allergic reaction associated with hyaluronic acid filler has pretty much overall been almost completely eliminated. So um, it's very uncommon for anyone to require a patch test before they get hyaluronic acid filler. But the biggest advantage with hyaluronic acid filler is it is reversible. And that's also one of the reasons why it has grown in popularity popularity to such an extent in such a short space of time is because now you have a product that doesn't need patch testing. You have a product that can last anywhere between a year to three years and is reversible. Mm. And you see the results straight away. So it's almost like perfection. So you get full control over the result. Patient is sitting in a chair, you perform the procedure, they get to see the results straight away, and they get to guide you sometimes as to what kind of result they are hoping to achieve. And it's safe enough that if they don't like it, they have the antidote for it, so to speak. So it's almost like the best of both worlds. And, and does the antidote just dissolve 
Yes, so the antidote is a liquid medication. It's an enzyme. And a and you inject the enzyme into where the filler sits. And within 24 hours, almost 100% of the filler disappears. Um, wow. And is there any is there any fallout to that? Because I know that... I know that the lip obviously increases in size, meaning the skin around it also increases in size. So if you were to expand the lip and then take away the filler, would it be a bit saggy? Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a logical um, deduction. Uh, so the you know, remember we spoke about everything has to have a healthy balance, right? Yeah. So it's important to not overfill um, the overfill the lips because the mucosa will have been stretched over a lengthy period of time. Mm. Um, so, uh, so if if you o- overfill the lips and then you dissolve it, understandably, as your 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 logic, um, and very rightly so, um, it would suggest that that person may potentially be left with a degree of laxity of the mucosa. A, so it's it's important that in that um, people don't overfill every you know their their lips and overfill other parts of the face, a because it can potentially or you know stretch the mucosa mm. enough that when one day if you decide to 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 not have filler to mm. to you might potentially be left with a laxity. Um, but fortunately, our human skin and human mucosa are pretty capable of contracting. Mm. So as long as it's not horrendously overfilled and not over a very lengthy period of time, most of the time you should be able to give it long enough for the skin or the mucosa to contract. Mm. But the there is another... Um, in negative consequence with um, overfilling, let's say the, the lips, is that we have glands in our lips to keep our lips uh, moisturized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what a lot of people are not aware of is, hence, um, it is you know, non non surgical injectables are medical procedures. Is because um, if you stuff the, the 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 lips with horrendous amount of filling agents, if you like, and in this case is hyaluronic acid, you may potentially squash those glands. Mm. And, and so patients can potentially have um, impairment of the function of these glands in when one day if they choose to not keep up with the overfilling or if they need to have the, the filler removed um, yeah. because these glands have been squashed um, for a lengthy period of time. They, un, un, they may not necessarily be able to recover their activities back. Um, so these are the things that a clinician is likely to consider um, because a clinician doesn't perceive a procedure as just a procedure. They, they, they are a lot of other considerations that a, a clinician has to make beyond sticking a needle into somebody's tissue yeah how do you think that people can retain healthy skin and lips 
uh, in the aging process. I'm 26. I'm getting there. I'm heading towards 30. How could I retain healthy skin and lips? You know, I was looking at you earlier um, and I was saying to myself, you are one of those fortunate ones that genetically you might be 120 years old, but look 25. <laughs> and, you know, yes. Uh, so it's, it's the, when it, when you start with the skin, is in the, the, the one thing that anyone can, the one best thing that anyone can do to um, ensure that they, they have good skin and they, the skin looks, continues to look healthy and young as they age is uh, sunblock. So use sunblock on a day-to-day -day basis even when they are indoor. And I think that's when people don't realize that even when you are indoor, uh, the, you still get exposure to uh, rays that can potentially age you now. So a lot of people don't realize that UV rays can go through windows. Mm. And the example I give them is if you put a leather couch next to a, a window long enough, a couple of years, the leather couch does age. The quality of the leather ages too. That's because UV light can, UV rays can go through windows. And our computer, a light, you know, ceiling lights, these have infrareds and, mm. and infrared rays can also age the skin as well. So even when you're indoors, sitting by the window, staring into a computer, cumulatively over many, many years, you're exposing your skin to these rays that can age your skin. So even when you're working indoor, it's important to use sunblock. Um, and then uh, some of our lifestyle choices like mm. cigarettes, you know, smoking and alcohol, um, if one can consciously reduce the consumption of these um, su uh, substances, then that can help with maintaining the quality of the skin for as long as possible. Uh, and then sun exposure is another one. Yeah. A, and again, when people are on holiday, they don't use enough sunblocks. They don't use it frequently enough. A lot of people think just by applying it at seven o'clock in the morning, they can then go wander around um, the city uh, for the entire day without having to reapply the sunblock. Um, or people who are well, walking on the beach uh, for miles and miles and miles when they're on holiday, they don't realize that the reflection of sun rays of the water that can, right. you know, that is like a magnifying glass um, because the rays are being reflected back um, onto your, your face. They think they are sitting in a shaded area under a little gazebo um, but by, the, by the, the swimming pool, but they don't realize that the, swim, the, the water in the swimming pool is reflecting back the, the UV light. So you may be in a shaded area, but you're still exposed to UV light um, through reflection of the tiled floor of the water in the swimming pool. Wow. Um, so they are not using enough of the, the sunblock and not frequent enough. Mm. So those are the things that they can they can do to help, but it has to be a sustained effort. It's not the case that you know you only apply sunblock when you're on holiday. <laughs> it has to be every day when you're driving, when you're sitting in your, your office. And then use good, good skincare product. And good skincare products don't necessarily have to be costly. Um, and that's another fallacy, if you like, that a lot of people think, you know, they have to use the most expensive skincare products. Um, but clinically, what a lot of people are not aware of, there are only two 
in general, I'm speaking in general here, there are only two active ingredients that clinically have been proven to, to have an, an anti-aging effect. Most of the other in, ingredients do not have anti-aging effect. They have tangible result, but they are unlikely going to provide cellular change with an anti-aging effect. So those two ingredients are retinol, i.e. vitamin A and vitamin C. So if anyone was to invest in topical skincare products and they don't want to spend a lot of money on these things, all they need to do is make sure that these two ingredients are, are in those products. Having said that, right, having said that, it is more complex than that. Sometimes, you know, oversimplification of something, especially oversimplification of signs can be dangerous. So having said that, it also does cost a little bit of money um, to, to, to have skincare products that work. So vitamin C, for instance, I mentioned that vitamin C is one of the two most important ingredients, but vitamin C is both temperature sensitive and motion sensitive. Um, and also is very sensitive to oxidation. So if you buy a tub of topical cream that cost £9.99, for example, mm. over the counter, and it proclaims to have high concentration of vitamin C, studies have shown that you open that tub of cream twice a day, right, morning and, and evening, and then you leave it there for about three minutes while you apply a, pour, uh, you know, a, a small um, blob of it onto your face, Within almost a week to 10 days, sometimes some of those brands, actually not over 90% of the vitamin C will have been oxidized within a week to 10 days. So it's just not effect after, after that? Yes, because it's sensitive to <laughs> oxidation. And on the subject of it being sensitive to motion and temperature, if you have a tub or a, a, a serum, vitamin C rich serum, and you shake it like tequila, you put it into your handbag, your gym bag and all this, and you shake it like a tequila, a lot of the molecules will have ruptured within that short space of time and they will, they will be ineffective because it's motion sensitive. Mm. Or you leave it in your gym bag and your gym bag is sitting in the, in the back of your car and in a temperature like this is minus three at nighttime in, the, in your garage. Um, you know, that, those molecules will have um, been, you know, been exposed to to sub freezing temperature, and so that type of cream is not going to give you the kind of effect that you think it's going to give you, because it's temperature sensitive. So, you, so manufacturers, some of the vitamin C serum serum are expensive because manufacturers understand that it is motion sensitive, temperature sensitive, and sensitive to oxidation. So they can manufacture the the vitamin C molecule in such a way that. To give you an example, they can incorporate stabilizing molecule in into the you know the the molecule the 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 overall molecule of the vitamin C serum, and the stabilizing molecule then provides stability to that vitamin C molecule, and allows it to withstand motion far better. And some of the molecules can be designed in such a way that it allows the vitamin C molecule to withstand oxidation and temperature much better but that costs money <laughs> so and there are some vitamin c serum which the molecule has 
been designed in such a way that it provides what we call sustained release, i.e. it penetrates through the different layers of the skin and it releases different amount of vitamin C as it goes through the different layers. Mm. So this kind of technology costs money. Um, hence, whilst vitamin C is one of the two most important ingredients, one would still have to unfortunately invest a little bit of money into buying vitamin C serum from a reputable manufacturer who has invested the research and development into producing that that bottle of serum. So it does cost a little bit. You have just blown my mind. That is absolutely wild. So I have Bulldog moisturizer. It, would it's a that, good brand, yeah. Mm -hmm. Would it work? Well, it's... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it must work for it to be such a, you know, a popular brand, you know, it's, yeah. uh, so I must, I, you know, I would like to think that they would have uh, invested significant amount of resources into the research and development of their products mm. uh, for, so, and also if it doesn't work, then it wouldn't have grown into this, the company it is today, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I would like to think so, um, that, but it's difficult to, to make a specific comment on, um, a product without seeing the product. Um, but I would like to think that just by it being such a big international global brand that yeah. um, that I would like to think that they have invested some money into it. Yes. And what moisturizers do you use? Well, um, <laughs> yes, I keep it very simple. So I'm going okay. to be a bit gender, um, a how do you call it? A so I'm going to, going to be a bit gen, gender stereotyping here. I'm 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 the, the I'm I'm a man, right? And I'm in my mid forties, and I keep it very very simple, because I'm not the the I, I'm I'm not the 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 type if if that's even the word to use now, you know, um I'm I'm not the the type who has the patience. Um, to stand in front of the mirror and apply multiple different layers of skincare yeah. products. So although I'm in this industry itself, I also understand that not everyone wants to go through this rather convoluted process of applying multiple things on their face. Um, and I'm one of them. I'm one of them. I, I, I use, so I'm not trying to promote anything here. Um, I, I have my own brand of skincare. I came out with my own brand of skincare about six years ago. It consists of only five core products um, because I understand that and my target market is those who don't want to use multiple products. So it only consists of a cleanser, a, a, a day moisturizer, night moisturizer, a face serum and an eye serum. So just five core products. And and I use my own products because mm. it's through using these products that I know what I can do with it, i.e. tweaking it moving forward. And so, for instance, my first range of cleanser was a non-foaming cleanser because at the time I believed, which is true, that sometimes foam can in a cleanser can dry the skin, can over dry the skin. Mm. A, so I went for a non-foaming cleanser, but after using it for a couple of years, I realized that non-foaming just simply doesn't give you that satisfaction, if you like, that it's almost as if you've got nothing applied. You know, you're not really cleaning your face, cleansing your face if there is no foam. So 
so I tweak the formulation of my cleanser after that. So now it is a foaming cleanser. And I also added some um, a high dose of peppermint into the cleanser because I also, having used it for a couple of years, I realized that it would, you know, some people do see this as a chore. So if you, if you are able to feel that cooling sensation while they are massaging that foam through their, 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 their face, it may potentially encourage them to continue with that routine. So that peppermint was introduced into the cleanser just to to just so that they have a more enhanced experience. So I use a very simplified regime, um, just a cleanser, moisturizer in the morning, nighttime, and serum, and that's it. I wonder if we get my moisturizer. Would you be able to run through to my bathroom, and there's Bulldog moisturizer there? I have Cetaphil as well. Do you know Cetaphil? Yes, yes, it's a it's a medicated brand. Yes, uh huh. Is is Cetaphil good? Uh, just in my toilet, it will be on the where the where the toothbrush is. Um, is Cetaphil a good brand? Yes, yes, it is a good brand. Um, it's um, you can buy them off the counter. A, yeah. a Cetaphil. Uh, it's 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 good. Good moisturizer. So I usually say to my patients, use anything that in that they are comfortable with, that they they that agrees with their 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 skin, because yeah. you know different people are sensitized by different things. Um, yeah. Oh, there we go. Right. This one's got quite a lot. I don't know. <laughs> so we've got well, Bulldog and Sertrafil. Um, were they not in the news? <laughs> yeah, few, right. Were they not in the news few months ago? Were they? Did they have? Were they bought over by? Yeah, I think they were. Would you be able to check that yeah. just in your phone? Who bought Bulldog? I'm sure yes. they were. Yes, yes, they were. I think they were bought over by a big company, Bulldog. Yes. Um, yep. So as you can see, the three um, active ingredients—they're very proud of it. So it's on the packaging. You've got aloe, which is very moisturizing and very soothing, mm. and also is anti-inflammatory. So it can be very good for razor burn. Yeah, perhaps right. Um, um, camelina is again just a soothing agent, and then green tea. Green tea is good for firming the skin. Uh, green tea extract. A uh, so it's a good product. So it's good. So that one's good. So what about uh, well, so it? Certainly, it has to be good because it, you, you look so young. <laughs> oh, you you're know, flattering me. <laughs> you look young. You have good skin. I can tell that you don't spend a lot of time in the sun, which is great. Do you find that people from the UK? This is a separate question. People from the UK, because of the climate, because it's so cloudy, and I mean, we're in Scotland, it's pretty rainy, do they have better skin than those who live perhaps overseas in Australia or the Philippines or somewhere sunny like that? Uh, well, now, internationally, uh, it, it, you probably know through my social media that I, um, I'm privileged enough to you know, be invited to speak at conferences um, internationally, on average, probably like twenty to thirty uh, countries a year. Um, there is there is this saying um, internationally that UK people are not skin people. Mm -hmm. um, it's just culturally, I think, and and again, I'm I'm just you know generalizing here. Um, culturally, I think UK people do not. Um, emphasize as much on the importance of looking after the quality of their skin as um, other countries such as the Nordic countries. Mm. And I think the perception of the society with regards to um, 
skin quality has a lot to do with it. Now, in the UK, there is this perception that if you look browned, if you look tan, you look healthy. Um, and there is nothing wrong with that. Um, but it is because of that perception that there is this expectation or this this expectation that somebody should always be looking tanned. And hence, we see all sorts of very creative ways of looking tan, mm. including um, spending excessive amount of time in the sun. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so so the 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 in the UK in general, uh, it, it, people like to spend a lot of time in the sun, and they accept ability with their acceptance level when it comes to having wrinkles on their faces is also a little bit higher than other countries right yes i think that's because their perception that looking tan is more important than not having wrinkles on their faces so they would put up with wrinkles on their faces more than other countries, as long as they look healthy, so to speak. Which is interesting because any form of tanning is sun damage, isn't it? Yes. So you are putting a label of healthy on something that is fundamentally dangerous. In a way. That is wild. In a way, yes, in a way. But you think about it like back 30 years ago, I have a lot of patients who are now in their 50s. When they come to see me, they always say, if only they knew the damage that they were inflicting on their skin back 30, 40 years ago. Because back 20, 30, 40 years ago, there was not as much education or public awareness with regards to damage that you can possibly inflict on your skin by exposing to excessive amount of sun. So those people back then, 30 years ago, would even apply butter on their skin or baby oil on their skin in order to look tan or to tan quicker. But they were practically <laughs> sizzling their skin, really sizzling their skin. Um, so now we see them, um, and they a lot of them would like to reduce the amount and the extent and the severity of their wrinkles. And it's not uncommon they would say to me that if only they knew what they were doing to their skin back then. Um, so I think the awareness is starting to, to, you know, I'm seeing more and more awareness of the fact that perhaps maybe you don't always need to look tan. Um, a, and, and I'm seeing that shift uh, that, you know, you don't always necessarily need to look tan to look healthy. There yeah. are other ways to look healthy too. That is, uh, that's absolutely wild. And I'm actually thinking about this. If you look at actors back in the day, look at Al Pacino, uh, for an example, he was bronzed and I'm talking golden brown. He looked great, handsome man. But now actors tend to be a lot more natural. I, w I don't want to say pale because it's just more natural. And I wonder if in Hollywood especially, they're more aware of the aging process and they don't want to go in the sunbeds and they don't want to tan as much. Well, have you heard of um, Brian Johnson, the guy who's in Project Blue Pit and spends like $2 million to try, or $5 million to try and uh, slow the aging process? So what's his name? Brian, Brian Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, Project so, Blueprint is what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So Brian Johnson has, just for the mics, Project Blueprint. 
and it sits in your face. Is that right? Well, no, he uses a machine to like uh, see the UV damage and stuff, and like and he basically has and like you know is yeah. Yes, yes. So in in cosmetic clinics, we have this machine called Visia, and it's a little pod, and not just similar to when you go see your optician that they ask you to rest your chin on a little platform. So there's this machine called Visia. It uses different types of lights of different frequencies, and and it can practically see what's in the skin and behind the skin. And and we use that to analyze the quality of the skin and give our patients a, a an idea of what they can do to either reverse those signs, um, those or try to do more moving forward uh, to look after their skin. Uh, so going back to what you were saying about Hollywood stars, I personally think a lot of it is uh, society's perception about what. Is acceptable and what is beautiful, hmm. because if you the opposite is also very true. If you think about in in Asia, in the UK or in Europe, but predominantly in the UK, a lot of the skincare products have a tinted moisturizer in a incorporator into them. Right, a lot of moisturizers have some tint incorporated into them. Uh, you can get all sorts of very creative topical products that can enhance your tan, preserve your tan. Prolong your tan, but in Asia, majority of the skincare products have agents that would lighten the skin. Wow! This is because the perception of beauty in Asia is the complete opposite. The paler you are,、uh. the the more beautiful it's perceived. And the more affluent, am I right in saying that? You ask, yes, yes. In general, you're right. You're right、yeah. because historically.、Um, This is very generalized. Yeah, yeah. So historically, people who work outside were tanned. People who work inside, they were paler, fairer, if you like. Yeah. So there was always that perception in the Asian society that you look—it's a reflection of the the financial background and social background that you're from, just by looking at your skin. Um, and also, it's just over time that it's you know the the way people perceive how good looking or how beautiful somebody is. Part of it is looking at the 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 the, the complexion of the skin.、Um, so the it is because of that that the 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 if you have a skincare product that has tanning agent in it, it's unlikely、yeah. that it's going to sell very well in Asia. So the opposite is 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 the case in in Asia. And is that the same in Scandinavia as well? Because they they have the same、uh, affiliation to tanning is dangerous. Yes. So so now I believe it or not, I've been to to、um, Norway probably coming to about forty eight, forty nine times. Beautiful,、now. isn't it? Yes, it's gorgeous. It、yeah. it it, it it's,、um, I'm affiliated to a, a, a university in in、uh, in Norway and a training institute in Norway, and I. Go to Norway six to eight times a year, and it's been so for about eight to nine years now. So I've been to Norway quite a few times. It's practically my second home.、Um, so the the Norwegians have beautiful skin. The Scandinavians、mm-hmm. have beautiful skin. A the you do have a high proportion of Norwegians who go to、uh, places like Spain, Portugal,、uh, South of France, and get、uh, you know excessive amount of exposure to 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 the sun, but. What's interesting in 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 Norway in Scandinavia is the younger generations 
are now recognizing there's definitely a shift in the way they perceive um, a, a beauty in a sense that the younger generations are now seeing, um, appreciating fairer skin being beautiful skin. So they celebrate that. They celebrate what a quintessential Norwegian would look mm -hmm. like, i.e. with fairer skin, if you like. I know that you know, that phrase quintessential Norwegian is probably now politically incorrect because what is a quintessential Norwegian? Mm. But you know what what I meant? That So the, the younger generation's Norwegians now um, celebrate the fact that fair skin can be just as beautiful as tan skin. So we are seeing this shift in culture, if you like, that um, fewer younger people growing up in Norway, particularly or Scandinavia in general, would pursue aggressively a tan skin just so that they could look so-called healthy, I think. Mm. Um, whereas in the UK, that perception of I look healthier if I'm tan is still very much within the society, the UK society, I think. That is wild. I think that the UK society is, I would say five to 10 years behind uh, the likes of Scandinavia, and this is just from being in these countries, and this is my perception. Australia, especially, are so... They're actually borderline OCD about the healthcare of their skin because of the sun damage yes. and because of skin cancer rates. And for some reason, we've adopted this mindset or perhaps just inherited this mindset of it's healthy to have uh, tan skin. S skin damage, how much can that age you and uh, and what's the kind of technicalities mm. behind it? So sunburn. So you're going to be shocked by this statistic. So we have two, broadly, two different types of aging. Mm. One is what we call chronological aging, i.e. genetic aging, right? So chronological aging is time that ages you. And then we have environmental aging or anything that's other than chronological aging. Believe it or not, Chronological aging only contributes towards 15% of the overall aging process in terms of appearance, right? Appearance. We're not talking about deterioration of your organs and things like yeah. that. Not like that. Um, so chronological aging only plays 15% of it, of, you know, only plays or only causes or contributes towards 15% of somebody's overall aging physical as in appearance aging yeah and the rest of it the remaining 85 percent is everything to do with our lifestyle and lifestyle choices um wow. our diet um sun exposure alcohol cigarette um a yeah yeah so that's 85 percent wow and what can people do in terms of diet to benefit their skin and uh, not reverse the aging process, but perhaps slow it down. Well, you see, um, I was watching this YouTube video years ago, um, and it was Elle McPherson. Mm. And understandably, every every time when somebody's interviewing her, one of the questions would invariably be that, what do you do to keep yourself looking so beautiful? Yeah, already in your 50s, you know, something like that. And Elle McPherson back then, and, and, and I learned that from her, and she said every morning when she gets up, the first thing she does is she would walk into her kitchen and she would then get herself a big pint, of, pint glass of water and she would drink that entire glass of water before she would go into her shower. And in, that's what I have been doing since um, for quite some time now as 
you know, I, I, I would wake up in the morning and I would switch on the shower and it would take a few minutes for the, the hot water to come through anyway. I would then walk into my kitchen and I would pour myself a big glass of water and then I would drink the, the entire glass of water. Um, so drinking um, plenty of water every day, every day, not once in a while, every day is, um, is a good start. Um, because at the end of the day, the skin is the largest organ in our human body. And the skin uh, evaporates uh, moisture 24-7. Mm. So we are losing moisture through the skin. So hydrating the skin is definitely a, a, a good way to maintain skin quality and skin health. Mm. And well, sun exposure minimizes that as much as possible. Yeah. Um, and then lifestyle choices like cigarette smoking, um, alcohols, you know, alcohol dehydrates the skin. Yeah. Um, well, us being in a cold country with a central heating system 24-7 running all the time, it's, you know, it also dehydrates the skin. And over a period of 30, 40, 50 years, so we are talking about cumulative damage, you know, all of that when you put together can age the skin significantly. Um, so use perhaps maybe body moisturizer to moisturize the skin. I know it's a lot of people don't do that. I don't do that too. Uh, but but that's why a lot of women they 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 um, predominantly women they they use body moisturizers don't they? Yeah. Um, is to moisturize the skin continuously. So there are a lot of things we can do. I mean, we obviously won't be able to do everything because aging is just part of life, isn't it? <laughs> we don't want to be overboard as well with we're trying to mitigate aging. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there are a lot of things that people can do just by having an awareness of what they can do. Um, in terms of lifestyle choices to help with the aging process, not necessarily to reverse it or not necessarily to, to, to stop it, but to slow it down. But the thing is, if you think about it, maybe, and I would like to think a lot of people don't mind aging. Mm. You, know, they, you know, there's nothing wrong with aging. There is nothing wrong with looking, in, looking older and looking, looking aged. So who are we to say that? People need to to do anything to slow down the aging process, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. If you were to look at me, and I won't be offended, <laughs> what do you think he would do to my face? You know, it's, it's just, I think before we started recording, did I not say that you're one of those that I was saying to myself must be, you know, genetically 120 years old, but 25 <laughs> years old. I think you've been blessed with, um, with just, you know, great skin, just great anatomy that... You know, if you were one of my patients at the age of 25, 26, I would say to you, celebrate, you know, everything you've got. Uh, if It's not uncommon that I, and, and I see 90% of my patients are, are, are women, as, as we discussed earlier, that if they are at the age of 25, 26, 27, and they are coming in for a couple of things, it's not uncommon that I would say to them, you think about people like Julia Robert, uh, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, when they were in their early 20s, they were good-looking girls, cute-looking girls, but they didn't quite become the beautiful women they are today until they were in their late 20s or their early 30s. Because human anatomy continues to change. And and although physiologically the, the that you know, a woman will have been fairly matured physiologically um, after their teenage years. But 
physically in terms of appearance, their appearance continues to change until almost you're in their late 20s. So if a, if a patient was to be sitting in front of me, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, and they want quite a few things done, it's not uncommon that that would kind of remind them of the fact that perhaps maybe it's not a bad idea to wait. Yeah. Leave it for a few years. Um, and and then, you know, perhaps reappraise if you are still uncomfortable with your physical appearance um, and then come back to me. Mm. Um, so I would say the same word to yourself that, um, you know, good skin, Scandinavian skin. Don't you think, <laughs> Yes, Scandinavian skin. Um, you, know, you know, good smile, beautiful teeth. Um, I would say just celebrate that and, and be content with that. Oh, you're making me blush. You're making me <laughs> blush. Um, listen, I, I, I know that you, you're you on a time frame and I don't want to let you leave, but I think I'll have to. Um, we do have a closing tradition. All right, okay. And it varies from guest to guest. Uh, so I suppose the question for you would be, what is the most valuable lesson that you have learned within your career so far? Right. Now, so since you use the word career, a, I remember just speaking to a colleague of mine some a what well, at the start of my career i was in surgery so i'm i have a surgical background and i remember speaking to a colleague of mine about something that's not related to what i'm about to to say and he happened to just mention this um uh, thing to me that he said the as as a as a doctor or at the time i was in surgical training so as a surgeon um you the the day when you let your guard down is the, the is the day you make mistake, um, and I think for my career that's been a mantra that I have uh, I have gone by um, that every day regardless of how repetitive some of the procedures may be uh, that you know a lot of people might potentially think Botox is Botox when you watch it on on YouTube that it's about pointing and shooting a, a syringe into somebody's skin. But to me, it's not, and, and, and it's a medical procedure, and I will lev- never let my guard down because the day when I let my guard down is when I make a mistake. So I would like to think that for my career, that has served me pretty well. Um, and then what I always also keep in mind every day is I graduated in 2003, I went to Glasgow University, and the day of my graduation, all of us, we took uh, an oath, um, and when, when we were told that we, you know, it's after the, the taking that oath that we were then pronounced as doctors. Mm. And, and I think I never let myself forget the fact that I took a Hippocratic oath, that ultimately I'm a clinician. Ultimately, when people come to see me, and on a day-to-day basis, I'm a doctor. And that trumps every single thing um, because I have a duty of care for my patients. Hence, I still refer to them as patients. I don't call them client um, because as much as some people may think that due to the fact that it's a private practice, it's cosmetic and there is um, transaction between the service provider and, and, and the person in front of us um, and there is an exchange of money, that they are more suited to be referred to as client. 
but I never see them as clients because I, you know, I, they are my patients. I am their doctor, um, and I have an overriding duty of care um, to look after them and to make sure that uh, that I perform to the best of my ability to keep them safe and and give them as as good a procedure that is scientific and evidence based and um and yeah ultimately i think it's 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 the fact that i am a clinician and and i always keep that in mind that trumps everything for sure well thank you so much for coming in that was amazing well thank done thank you very much for having me thank you no yes. thank you oh no that was i didn't look at my piece of paper